Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, my name is Nancy, and I'm going to read Matthew 8, 1 to uh, 17, I think it is, and it's NIV edition. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go. Let it be done, just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits, with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our disease. This is the word of the Lord. If you have been with us for the last couple of weeks uh, since the beginning of the new year, then you'll know that we are heading into part three of Life on Purpose, uh, the sermon series that we're going to be taking, uh, you know, for the next eight weeks or so. And I've been told that I need to actually say that very clearly for the sake of the recording, because in Vaughan, uh, some people were getting confused, because this sermon won't actually be preached in Vaughan till next week, and people are cheating by listening ahead of time, and they're learning. See, we understand in Bolton this whole staggered thing a little bit better than they do, and so I've been told to say for the people in Vaughan on the recording that this is Life on Purpose Part 3. Um, 
Um, I'm poking a little bit of fun, but it's also just really helpful. So uh, the whole idea behind uh, this, uh, behind living life on purpose is, again, looking to, who, looking at rather who we are right now, and then uh, trying to figure out who it is we want to be later on. Some of the good questions that we want to be asking throughout this series and that are just helpful for us to ask in our own lives are like, what kind of person do I want to be? What do I want my life to look like? Is there someone that I can look to uh, that might emulate the kind of life I want to be? Like I can look to them and mimic them or follow them? Is there something I want to accomplish? Is there some legacy I want to leave behind? And really, all of this is wrapped up in what it means to live a life of purpose and on purpose. And so for the past few weeks, which you can go and grab online uh, if you want at upperroom.ca or you can subscribe to the podcast, you'll see that we've been talking about this idea how before we can begin to live our life on purpose, purpose, what we need to do first is actually understand who we are, like who has God created us to be, um, and what is the identity that he's given us. Once we begin to figure that stuff out, then we can say, okay, God, what does it mean to live the life that you have for me? Because it's not necessarily a natural thing for us to consider involving God in our vision for life. We look at who do I want to be, what do I want to become like, and, you know, we might look to people on TV or politics or celebrities or, or maybe an influential teacher that you had or someone else, and you look to them to see how they've lived their lives, what are the habits they've had, but it doesn't necessarily come naturally to us to want to look to God to say, what is the vision that you might have for my life? And I think that the reason that we don't do that naturally is because we tend to have this sense that God is very far away or at least inaccessible, very busy with other things. And so we might have this uh, picture of God being up a mountain, right? The, 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 the symbol of a mountain is a very common symbol, picture, analogy, metaphor in all sorts of uh, religions, all sorts of spiritual thinking, all sorts of philosophy. It's really um, a a common kind of idea because if you think about like the highest mountain, right, which is Mount Everest, um, you think about the highest mountain, this idea that the higher you go up the mountain as you achieve like actual physical elevation, there's this connection to this idea of also being, having some sense of spiritual elevation as well. And so you see this picture of the mountain all over the place. This is a common analogy for God. Um, Mountains uh, are thought to contain a sense of divine inspiration. And so there's even like, I was spending some time earlier this week reading about Mount Everest and uh, all this stuff. And at the foot of Mount Everest and scattered throughout, there's various temples where monks live because it gives them this picture, again, uh, of spiritual life or spiritual bigness or spiritual something. There's a sense of divine inspiration. There's a sense of accomplishment. Any of you have ever climbed a mountain? That's not me. I walked once to the top of Blue Mountain, which I don't think counts um, necessarily. Um, But there's a sense of, like, it's an accomplishment, right? You've arrived somewhere, you've achieved something. And so um, all of these movies, like Eat, Pray, Love, whatever else, this idea of of going on a journey with the hope of achieving something, finding yourself. And this gets attributed to the picture of a mountain, that physical elevation equated with spiritual elevation. Um, There's this 
big idea within general worldviews or with, within many religious worldviews at least that um, spiritual, or rather that view spirit mountains as a universal symbol of closeness or nearness to God. Um, because again, there's that elevation thing. The higher you go, the closer you get to God because he's way up there. Uh, that within dreams, it's said that if you have a dream where there's a mountain in your dream, then it actually signifies danger. Unless you climb the mountain in your dream, then what that does is it actually depicts, again, inner elevation. You, you catching the, 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 the sense here? This idea of the higher we get physically, the closer we get to God. There's other analogies that come around this idea of a mountain, and that if God is at the top of a mountain or if he's way up there, then for sure there are many passages that you could take. And some people would say, well, those various paths that you would take to get to God who's at the top might be the different world religions or different worldviews. And if you just pick one and stick to it, uh, eventually at the end of the journey, you'll be rewarded and you'll find God. And so with this analogy, there is something in it that is inspiring. I think there's something intriguing about it. There's something even inviting because if you're the kind of person who's into adventure, there's a type of like um, excitement that comes along with going on this journey to, to follow a path, to climb a mountain, to find God. It could be intriguing to you. But on the other hand, um, it can seem so hard or can seem like God is so far away because to climb a mountain, whether physically or spiritually, seems so daunting seems so inaccessible. And we've heard stories, I mean, about some people who make it. We might have this idea of saying, well, some people uh, have climbed mountains. And so, you know, I looked up this week how much it costs to climb Mount Everest, and it cost at least $45,000, which, I mean, that right there ruled me out, not like there was a hundred other reasons. But that one right there pretty much said, well, there's a dream I can kiss goodbye. Um, and uh, that's for like a basic, you know, Sherpa package, and they'll get you up there. And there's no guarantee they'll actually get you up there. There's one group I found, it's like $120,000 or something, and they'll guarantee you get there, but I think they carry you up basically with oxygen and that includes a chef and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but that kind of mix messes up the whole purpose of why anybody would want to climb, I think. Um, and so there's this sense, well, you know, the mountain is so daunting because only an elite few will make it. You have to have that amount of money or you need to have that particular skill set or a set of lungs that can, you know, deal with all the elevation change. In a spiritual sense, we might think that the mountain is daunting and it's only for a select few, you know, like the monks or the religious and the spiritually elite, the ultra faithful kind of people. And so there's something inviting about it, intriguing about it, but then we wonder, there's only a few people that make it and there's lots of people who don't make it for a variety of reasons. Uh, they succumb to the circumstances around them and they can't make, they only make it to base camp on Everett's. They don't make it up any further. In a spiritual sense, uh, trying to put religion into practice and do the things that people have said to do, but you're finding it's just like you're spinning your tires and you're not moving anywhere. One thing that's for sure common in our culture, and we interact with folks like this all the time, and the truth is it's even true in my own life sometimes, there's a disinterest. People don't climb the mountain because we're not interested in it right? We don't think it's relevant or we don't think it's actually worth it. We don't think that we're actually going to achieve something in the very end. But then again, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of people who've never even tried, right? So you can go online and look up the statistics, how many people make it to the top, to the summit of Everest, you know, and I think it's like depending on the year and the weather and all that kind of stuff, about 800 or something people try uh, to climb it per year. Only less than 50%, I think, actually reach the summit, and many of them don't do it in their first attempt, right? So there's this sense of like looking at that and saying, well, I don't even know, I could never do that. And again, there's this analogy, this play on a concept that I'm doing here, right, where we've got the picture of the physical mountain, 
but what it represents in a spiritual sense. And so if in a spiritual sense, our view of God is that he is way up a mountain, that it's going to take this unbelievable journey to get to him, to access him, we might begin to say to ourselves, no, it's impossible. He isn't accessible. He's hiding up there. We're not able to reach him, which means when it comes to understanding or trying to figure out what our purpose in life is, we don't include God in it because it already seems so daunting right from the beginning. Yet, As we've been walking through the book of Matthew, many of you have been joined in on the reading plan um, and have been reading on your own time at home, and there's still time to get involved on that. Just go to the website and find the blog tab. We're sending out a link to that every week. Those of you that have been been journeying along with us and reading the passage and following along with us in this sermon series actually shows us that that Matthew, um, where Nancy just read from, one of Jesus' earliest followers who wrote down a bunch of the things that he saw Jesus do and heard Jesus teach, one of the things he writes about is that this isn't at all the picture of God we're meant to have. Think about how the Gospel of Matthew begins. It begins with the pronouncement of God coming to earth and we are given a name for him. Right? If you want to be made accessible to somebody else, you give them your name so they know how to talk to you or how you can be referred to. And the name, yes, we know Jesus most commonly as Jesus, of course, but the name that was given was more specifically Emmanuel, which is the Hebrew way of saying God with us. I'm coming there to be God present with you. Not hard to access, not far away, but right in the midst of you. What follows those things is the details of how Jesus's life came to be through his birth and how his life began to unfold. So Matthew is telling us a story that God is not far away and inaccessible. Everything is switching around, being flipped upside down, because now God is making himself known and accessible right in front of you. He's come to earth to live right here. So if you were with us last week, you would have heard Vijay talking about uh, this idea of the upside-down kingdom. And so what Jesus does after his baptism and his temptation, uh, some time goes by, and then he uh, and some of his followers go into a mountain place, right? There's the Sermon on the Mount is probably the subtitle that you'll find as you read Scripture. Sermon on the Mount, on the mountain, right? An actual mountain. He goes up there, there, he's preaching and teaching to them, and then once he's done giving that sermon, giving all of those teachings where he covers a wide variety of subjects that, inter- that, that kind of intersect with all facets of life. He talks about all sorts of things. The very next thing that takes place, and we see it here in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1, when Jesus came down the mountainside, came down from the mountainside, large crowds began to follow him. We can skip over this as a narrative detail in the story, right? Jesus went from one place to the next. Jesus was done, and I mean, as you read throughout the rest of the gospel letters, the biographies of Jesus' life that are written, it often says uh, immediately he went from this place to this place, and then he went from that place to this other place. You can skip over that and say, well, but when Jesus came down from the mountainside is not just a narrative detail. It's actually something that Matthew is giving to us as a gift to say that God has come down the mountain to us which with all of these pictures or analogies or symbols or metaphors that we have of these physical mountains and God's way up there and maybe all the paths lead to him or maybe one path leads to him or is it possible to make it? Is, is he accessible? Is he trying to hide from us or whatever? This actually just blows all of that up because now what's being said 
is we don't have to climb the mountain to try and get to him. He's come down the mountain to us. That's important. And what's even more important is that this is how he begins to usher in this upside-down kingdom that he was teaching about. So again, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, all of the things he teaches in there seem so backwards, seem so upside-down, right? Turn the other cheek. Well, that's different than reciprocating and, catching re- and getting, uh, getting revenge. If a soldier forces you to walk one mile, instead go with them two miles. Well, why would I do that? They're an enemy. They're oppressors. Why would, it, why would we do that? He's just flipping everything right upside down. And what Jesus does here when he comes down the mountain and begins to interact with people, uh, uh, begins to interact with people and start doing uh, this part of his ministry, what he's doing is saying the kingdom of God, this upside down kingdom is not just about what you know. It's not about knowing the right thing to say, the right thing to do. It's about actually being a part of making it come alive, making it happen around or in the lives of people. The upside down kingdom that Jesus talked about is directly attached to the things that he is doing, that he was going to do then, and what he's continuing to do even in our own lives right here. And so Matthew chooses in his writing to describe in chapter 8 and 9 a whole ton of miracles that Jesus does. And we'll look at a chart of that later on. Um, But one thing that is so interesting is the three miracles that he chooses to dial in on as he starts talking about Jesus's ministry. So the first person that Jesus heals is a leper, somebody with leprosy, a skin disease. The second is a paralyzed servant of a Roman commander. And the third is a woman who has a fever. And it's worth noting here, I think, it can be really easy for us to read through scriptures, uh, to read the stories and say, okay, I mean, this is great. He's going to work these miracles and, you know, a a bunch of sick people are going to get healed and demons are going to be cast out and whatever else. But one thing we often forget is that this book, okay, the the Gospel of Matthew that was written down, um, was written 2,000 years ago. And when Matthew was writing this down, he did not have us in mind today. He wasn't thinking that in 2,000 years, he wasn't thinking that in 500 years, he wasn't thinking that even in 100 years later, there would necessarily be anyone reading what he was writing down. He was writing something to make sense to the people that would have been reading it then and there in that context, in that particular cultural and historical and religious moment. Which means when we look at the leper, the servant of the centurion uh, leader, and the woman, we can't just look at them as three people that got healed, as cool as that is, as important as that is. We actually have to say, well, what is the significance of those three people in the day that Matthew was writing it? What is it that he was trying to tell us right, what is it that he was trying to tell his readers right then and right there? And as we get into looking at these three, we see that it's the way that Jesus is flipping everything upside down. Okay, so we're going to zero in on these three here for just a minute because um, what it does is it shows us that the how the kingdom comes isn't the only important thing, but the who the kingdom is brought to is equally as important. So it starts with a man who has leprosy. Leprosy uh, in scripture is used to describe a whole wide variety of skin diseases. Uh, But what's most important is that this man would have been highly contagious. Um, And so he likely would have lived most of his life now in obscurity. He might have been a part of a colony of other people who had already caught it in skin diseases. But more important for the context of the day, he was a person where the people of God were told not to go near him. 
Because not only was he physically unclean, because of his physical uncleanliness, he was also deemed spiritually, religiously, and ceremonially unclean. So he was basically a social outcast. He wouldn't have been able to participate in the religious rituals and ceremonies that would have been needed at that time to to be purified of his sin and whatnot. And so he was deemed an outcast. People of God were told not to go near them. Why? Because there's a couple of things at risk. I mean, one thing is if you go near somebody who's highly contagious and you, you're around them, let alone touch them, you're likely to run, you run the risk of contracting that disease yourself. But there was this separate, this other thing rather, not separate, the two things are, are intermingled, where the spiritual and the physical are very much connected to one another. The people of God were told, don't go near people who are unclean physically and ceremonially because you who are clean that touch the one who is unclean will be made unclean by them, okay? And yet, what we have is Jesus coming down the mountain to begin doing this part of his ministry where he's working miracles and doing incredible things. And his reputation had obviously gone before him. And this man with leprosy had an amount of faith to go and find Jesus and ask that he would be healed. And he says, if you're willing, Jesus, you can heal me. What does Jesus do? He doesn't say, be healed from a distance, you know, in a hazmat suit. He reaches out, it says, touches, his hand, touches him and says, uh, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the man was cleansed of his leprosy. This tells us something about the upside down kingdom. Jesus, in bringing the kingdom of God into earth, down to earth, touches the untouchable. And what happens here is the clean touches the unclean, but the unclean doesn't make Jesus, the clean one, unclean. The clean one makes the unclean one clean. Did you follow that sentence? I hardly did. Right? The clean makes the unclean clean, as opposed to what was thought and what had been in place for always before that, forever before that. How counterintuitive is that? How upside down and how backwards does that seem to be? See, the man's uncleanliness and his sickness and his ceremonial uncleanliness as well, all those things, um, would have been, were clearly more than enough to keep everyone else away from him, but nothing is enough to keep Jesus away. That's what's upside down about him. He's coming to do something that's so different. Secondly, he's approached by a centurion man. A centurion has a servant who's at home who is paralyzed. Talks about this in Matthew chapter 8, uh, verse 5 and onwards. And um, we've got to remember, Jesus has just touched an untouchable man, which anybody who was religious, anybody who was a child of God, a Jew at the time, would have been like, what on earth is happening? We don't even have a category for this. The next person that approaches him is a centurion, who is a Roman commanding officer who would have been responsible for <clears throat> at least 100 Roman soldiers. Throughout Israel's history, they were constantly being held captive by oppressive regimes, and the Romans were one of the most brutal of all of them, which means that this Roman centurion represents the epitome of what an enemy was to God and his people. And the man comes, the soldier comes, and he says, I have a servant who's at home. Will you make him better? Jesus says, okay, well, do you want me to come to your house? and to make him feel better, like to, to heal him? Do you want me to come to your house? And he says, no, no, no. Um, in verse uh, 8, he says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, 
and my servant will be healed. In those days, <clears throat> excuse me, people would have had all sorts of ways to try and get healed. There would have been um, hot springs. There would have been uh, particular pools that they, would be, that they would bring people to. And as the water was mixed up, they had this sense if you're there at the right time, then you can actually receive healing. For sure, there would have been other magicians. There would have been miracle workers, lots of other people around. Uh, they would have had even shrines where people would have gone to worship to say, uh, you know, we can bring in or we can bring down healing on us if we put enough sacrifice or make enough, uh, give enough worship. Worship, but nobody would have thought that you could be healed unless you came into physical contact with the water or with that healer. And so what Jesus does here is something so much more interesting than, uh, you know, um, than just being impressive with his power. He's actually breaking a completely other, another completely different paradigm that these people had, which is in order to be healed, you had to come in contact with something. We, we know that Jesus has no issue um, physically touching people to heal them, to demonstrate his power. He just did that with an untouchable person. He made that point very clearly. But here, Matthew, or Jesus says, you've had the faith, right? He says, I believe you can do this miracle from a distance, the soldier basically says. Just do the words and it will be done. So Jesus does a long distance miracle, right? And, and this is, I mean, that, I'm assuming that Matthew found out later that the soldier actually went home and found the servant healed, and that it wasn't just that he said these words, and then there was this automatic belief that it happened. But unlike any other way that or method that they would have found healing, Jesus is saying, this power of mine, this authority of mine, this kingdom of mine is so different than what you think, because not only does, do I touch the untouchable, and as a clean person make them clean, but I will do things like this. My power goes beyond the stretch of the human hand, um, even to people that you would view as an enemy, even as people that you would view uh, as an enemy. And Jesus says about this man later on, he says, I have found, I have not found rather, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. What a huge slap in the face to any religious person of the day. A Jew, a part of a family with a heritage of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of being a part of the family of God, the people of God, living in Israel. And here is Jesus saying, I have not yet come into contact with a person who has as much faith as this Roman person who is not a Jew. Who, who we don't even know what this Roman guy thought about Jesus. Maybe he just thought Jesus was um, another spiritual leader or something, but didn't know the storyline or the narrative of him being the Messiah, the one who was promised to come, that he was God in the flesh. Like, we don't know what he knows. He uses the word Lord, right? He says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But that might not be Lord in the sense that we use the word, right, as a recognition of him being God. That's just a, a that could have just been a respectful, honoring acknowledgement of the soldier saying, I'm submitted to you, Lord, like you're a Lord. You have, you're lording over me, right? We don't know what he thought. And yet he has faith that Jesus can do this, and Jesus does it from a distance, and Jesus makes the comment and says, I've not found faith like this anywhere, which is very interesting, perhaps even as a warning for those of us that have been following Jesus for a long time. We are making a big mistake to think that we're the only ones that have the corner on the market on faith. There are lots of people in their journey of life that are trying to figure things out and have their own ways of, of acknowledging or, or saying out loud, confessing what their faith looks like. And there might not be at this place yet where they've come to say, yes, I trust Jesus fully and completely, but there's still something about this man that can have enough faith to not only see his servant get healed, 
But he also gets told that he has more faith than anyone else in all of Israel as far as Jesus has met. It's something like upside down about that. So completely counterintuitive. This is what Jesus is doing. And Matthew, as he's putting these things down in this order, is purposefully trying to make sense of what the upside down kingdom looks like. So he's healed a leper. He's healed a paralyzed man. And miracles as they come are, are exciting and impressive no matter what they are. But last one that we're told about uh, in the first of the three is Jesus comes to Peter's house. Peter was one of his disciples. And as he comes into Peter's house, he sees that his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, is lying in bed with a fever. Totally common in that day for extended families to live together. It's a totally common, normal thing. Jesus walks over to her, touches her hand. Her fever goes away. She gets up, says the very next line, she got up from that and then began to wait on him, begins to serve him. And again, we can just be racing through all the miracles and we can say, well, what does that even matter? Like, you know, that is not impressive by comparison to the other things that he's done. It seems simple. It seems small. It even seems insignificant to what Jesus has begun to do. But nobody asked Jesus to do that. Peter didn't say, come to my house because my mother-in-law is sick. Jesus was over there for whatever reason, hanging out. He comes in and sees that there's a need and it's not insignificant to him. It is important to him. And there's compassion for even something as simple as a fever. That could have been, who knows what kind of fever. She could have had malaria, some commentators were saying. She could have had who knows what else. But what it says is she had a fever. Jesus saw even that as enough of a need to go over and touch her hand to heal her. He cares about everything. He cares about the untouchable person, the leper. He cares about the centurion's servant. He cares about the woman with a fever. And as you continue to read, check that slide out. As you continue to read um, through the next two chapters, these are all of the things that are marked down that Jesus goes about doing just, as Matthew puts them, just there. And we could say this was a really busy life in the day of Jesus. We don't know chronologically the exact order that they all came in, but I do believe that Matthew is trying to communicate a very particular message about the kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing in, about the kind of power he has, about the kind of authority that he has. And so just going through a couple of those quickly, right? Uh, we see that after he does, after he heals Peter's mother-in-law, then he begins to drive out demons, which is saying, not only do I have authority over the physical realm, over a physical body, but I actually have authority and power over the spiritual world as well. One of, the, one of the miracles that's brought up here in Matthew 8, chapter 26, is he stops a storm from happening. So this shows us that he has power and his kingdom even has authority over creation and over disaster because as men out on a boat, uh, they would have been in a situation of certain death. And yet he has a power, he has power over even that. Um, he then forgives sin in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, which again, we say, yes, Jesus forgives sin. That's what the whole thing is all about, isn't it? But in the day, the common belief was that the only person that was powerful enough to forgive sin is God himself, which Jesus in saying this man's sin are forgiven, and that's a really awesome story to, to read about this paralyzed man and, and the order of which Jesus heals him and then forgives his sins and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus was making himself equal with God and saying, I am God because I have the authority to even forgive sin and make someone right with our creator in heaven. Um, he raises a girl from the dead, which is a, they're all big deal. That's a big deal, Right. And actually in that story, he says, she was only sleeping, 
right? Which a misreading of that makes, gives us the sense that Jesus didn't actually raise her from the dead. She was only taking some type of nap or was in a coma or something. But the underlying message to that is Jesus is actually saying, in me, people who are dead are not going to be dead forever. There will be the second resurrection unto eternal life. He's prophesying in that moment and showing that his kingdom is so much bigger and beyond than what we could ever imagine. And so I'd encourage you to make sure you're doing the readings, um, to follow along, to see all the things that he's doing. But Jesus is showing us that his kingdom has no limitations. He has power and authority over every single aspect of life, and he transforms the lives of every single person he encounters. The kingdom of God, getting access to God, being close to God, isn't about what we do. It's about something we receive. It's not about climbing the mountain to Jesus. If we climb the mountain, we'll miss Jesus because he came down the mountain to us. And he gives us the gift of saying, this is what the kingdom is actually going to look like. And it's not for the select few or for a select few. It's not for the ultra-spiritual monks, people in full-time ministry or in seminary or whatever. You know, your grandma who's prayed for 17 hours a day for the last 400 years. Like it's not, he's saying that it's not just for that. Clearly, there's some way that he is saying that the kingdom of God is for everyone and the emphasis is actually on the outcast the spiritually and the socially outcast, women, the fact that it's a woman that's included in the first of those three healings has its own cultural context that's important and valuable in its own right. Um, uh, There's Gentiles as people that were not Jews, part of one of the children of God, the sick, the oppressed, paralyzed, demon-possessed. There's no favoritism. Where there's faith, there's a miracle. Where there's a need, Jesus leans in and he brings the kingdom into that moment. And as we read through all these different things, interspersed throughout uh, these tellings are are repetitive invitations from Jesus who continually says, follow me. He does some stuff and then he says, follow me. He does some more things, he says, follow me. He does some more things, he says, follow me. Which means this isn't just about some type of magic show where we can be spectators and we can just say, oh, look at how incredible Jesus is. Instead, he says, follow me, which is an invitation to not only receive the kingdom into our own lives, but to be a part of bringing it into the lives of others. Think about the people that he met as he did these miracles in their lives. They begin to uh, serve him. They begin to worship him. They call him Lord. One of the stories says that they call him the son of David, which is an acknowledgement that he is the Messiah, the one who was promised to come from God, from the line of, from the line of David, who was another king in Israel. That they're, they're acknowledging that this is the one that was promised to come. He's actually here now. There's, there's quotations from the, from the prophet Isaiah who spoke about Jesus, the son of God, that would come, this one who would come and rescue and save people. And interspersed in all this, you've got people who are following, calling him Lord, experiencing that life change. And then there are also skeptics, people who say, no way is this the one. The things that he's doing are not what we expected this person to come and do. He's not nearly by the book enough. He's not by the book at all, actually. He doesn't do things the way we think he should do them. He doesn't fit in the box that we want to have about him. And their accusations of Jesus are like significant. They're not like skeptics who are like, bah. Actually, one of them, one, one quote is saying in Matthew 9, 34, 
Uh, the only reason, he says, the only reason that this man, that Jesus, has authority over the demons is because he himself is the prince of demons. And in another place, when Jesus is actually talking about this to his disciples, he says, remember when those skeptics, when those Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, remember when they called me um, prince of demons? They actually called me Beelzebub, which is a name that's used for Satan. So there are some people who will receive and have this life transformation and follow And there were others, and the ones that Matthew highlights in this instance that are the most skeptical, the most, uh, who reject Jesus the most, are actually the ones who claim to be the most religious, the ones who claim to be the closest to God in the first place. Upside down. Completely blowing up all of our paradigms. Completely changing everything that we think. And now, here's the thing that I, I mean, it's all cool. I love it all. But here's one thing that is awesome. Matthew was writing this 2,000 years ago to a group of people to make sense of it in that particular historical, cultural moment. And yet here we are today, hearing these stories, allowing the Spirit of God to apply it in our own lives to make sense of the things that he's doing. And you know what? It's just as relevant even here today. There are still people who follow Jesus, who've come close, who've experienced that he actually is the one who gives the gift. He came to us. We don't have to do the work to get to him. We believe and see what he does. And then there's other people who don't want anything to do because they've got too tight category, too tight boundaries on what they expect God to be. And so this invitation where Jesus continually says, follow me, is not just for the people of that day, while he was walking on earth, it's actually for today as well. And so follow me, this invitation from Jesus, could mean one of two things. It can either mean trust me or it can either mean imitate me. That, that kind of depends on where you're at in this whole journey. And so if, if Jesus' invitation, uh, when he says follow me, for you, if that means trust me, what this means is saying, I am going to take a step of faith and I'm going to trust in Jesus that he is who he says he is that the, the power of the miracles and the things that we heard him teach and, saw, uh, and read about and, and all that, that, that's not just for a particular time, but that's even for now. And, and if you're saying, if you're looking at this invitation as a trust me kind of invitation, you might have this sense where you feel like you're the leper. Maybe you can relate to the leper. Outcast, pushed away, um, nobody's really tried to reach out to you. You've been left to your own. You've, you're hoping that, that some way you would be able to reach, interact with God, but for some reason people have deemed you uh, untouchable. And you know what happens, unfortunately? Um, you could be in that situation where actually like another Christian person lost hope in you and said you're too far gone. And, and usually it's when somebody else from your own faith or somebody else that's a Christian, or somebody from your own family, puts that label on you and says, oh, you're too far gone, that we take it to heart the most, right? And like this leper, he was rejected, not just by religious people, but by fellow countrymen. They didn't want anything to do with him. And yet he still had enough faith to come and find Jesus. And maybe you're in the room and that's your position. Maybe you're like the Roman soldier and, and your, your sense is like, I am like an enemy of God. And the way I've lived my life, the decisions I've, I've made, the things I've done, the, all that stuff, I just, there's no way. But there's something inside you that wants to still have a piece of that kingdom or see it made manifest in your own life. Remember what he said. Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel. If you're in that situation where you feel like you're an enemy of God, first of all, every single one of us has at one point been an enemy of God. 
The only way that our relationship with God is brought to a state of peace where there's no more war back and forth, where we are not enemies of God, is in Jesus. He's the one who comes and says, I will give you the gift of a peaceful, restored relationship with your creator. Maybe you've got um, a fever. Maybe physically, like literally you have a fever. But maybe spiritually you have a fever and you're like, yeah, you know, my life is like not bad and the stuff in my life, I mean, there's people I know, they've got lots of stuff going on. I don't want to bother God with even my fever. What's interesting about that story is that they didn't ask for healing for the fever. Jesus still saw it as a need and went and meant it, met it. What this means is wherever you're at, if Jesus is saying, follow me, and for you, you're hearing that as an invitation to trust him for the first time, you need to hear loud and clear, Jesus came down the mountain because you are worth it. He's not waiting and longing for you to come to him. He's doing everything he can possibly do to pursue you. And maybe even hearing this word, these words this morning is what you need to hear to, to, to actually say, oh, that's him now speaking to me. For others, it means imitate me. Those of you in the room who do trust Jesus, if you've taken those steps, hasn't always been perfect, hasn't, maybe it's never been perfect, maybe it's always been choppy and messy and muddy and confusing, but, but you're saying, um, I, I know that Jesus is my king and that the kingdom has been made manifest in my life and I want to imitate him. And if that's you, you are following him, a couple of questions for you. Who is an untouchable person you need to reach out and touch like Jesus did? And friends, we don't need to think, you know, even to the entire community of Bolton for this. We can overcomplicate this and we can say, well, there's this kind of person and then there's these people and there's whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. In your family, the people you eat lunch with, in your class, who is somebody that just seems, quote unquote, untouchable? You don't know how you should react to them or interact with them because maybe you've been taught your whole life that you're not supposed to. Jesus comes down and he touches the leper. What is your way of being able to interact with that person to bring a touch of the kingdom into their own life? Um, who's an outsider or an enemy? And I, want to, I should have put outsider and enemy in quotes actually because, um, I mean, one way we think of it is like, they are outsiders. There's no way I want to bring them to church. Right? I don't know how I would do that. If I invited them to, to, our, to our home group, man, they're just going to mess that up and they're too messy and rough around the edges. If you have that person in your mind, that's the person that Jesus is saying, imitate me and bring them into your home group. Imitate me and bringing them to coffee. Imitate me, invite them to church. Imitate me by going out to them and showing them that there is a way for them to not be enemies anymore, for them to actually be at peace. So you serve them, welcome them, invite them in. And maybe there are things you've held back from God and you're trying to still have this bit of self-reliance. Right? You're saying, I trust Jesus that he can do everything. You know what? Like the fever thing this week really got us because my kids were sick. Sam had a fever for a few days. I'm like, that's just a fever. And every time we give him the Advil, the fever breaks. Right? So it's not a continuing ongoing thing and whatever else. It's just a fever. I don't actually think we prayed about it until yesterday, which is like a two days after he'd already been on antibiotics and was starting to get better. What is this? Like what kind of message is Jesus trying to tell me about a fever? that especially things like a fever, Jesus sees the fever as, be, as being important. And yet there's things that we do in our own life where we trust in the doctors or we trust in our own know-how or we trust in our education, or we trust on, our, on our, 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 uh, how, how far ahead we've gotten in the game in our career and we're, we're still trying to be self-sustainable. And we hold things back from God and we say, well, yeah, you can have these other parts of my life, but, but not this. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The kingdom is for all of that. 
I'm bringing it into your life to transform, to change absolutely everything. So what is the thing that you've held back from him that you've deemed unimportant or that you can just deal with on your own? You don't really need to bother him with that. Jesus came down the mountain because like it matters so much to him. You cannot bother God. You cannot annoy him with your needs. He longs for that. He loves that. He invites us to that. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up here. And uh, as they're coming and getting themselves prepared, reflect on that. Where, where are you? Is the call to trust him rather to follow him, to trust him for the first time? Is it to imitate him? And we're going to sing a song called, um, what's that called? Reckless Love, thank you. <laughs> and uh, there's some incredible pictures in this about his pursuit of us. And keep that image of the mountain. How impossible it is to get to God if we had to climb the mountain. But here Jesus comes down the mountain and shows us that his kingdom is not far off and distant to us. He's brought it near and he's constantly, relentlessly, recklessly even, bringing it into every aspect of our lives. So, Father in heaven, thank you for giving us Jesus. And Jesus... Thank you for coming down the mountain and giving us access to God. Thank you for showing us that you are, your love and your power and your authority is so different than what we often think it is. It flips everything we know and understand upside down. You love the ones that are outcasts. You bring them in. You make them clean. Those that are enemies, you show them that they are still important to you and you want them to be healed and at peace with you. And even things as seemingly insignificant about a fever are still important to you. And so, Lord, in this next couple minutes as we sing here, as we respond to you in worship, wherever each one of us is at, God, I pray that we would be crying out to you and saying, yeah, Jesus, make your kingdom come, come in my life. Maybe, maybe you need a touch from God and you just need to pray, Lord, touch this area of my life. Lord, maybe you need to um, inspire people to know exactly how to go about that conversation with those that they're going to go and talk with this week. The people they need to call, the people they need to invite over, how they need to go out of their way to serve those. Make that so clear that when we leave here today, Lord, we don't have to even scramble or wonder about what we do because we can be sure that you told us what it is we need to do, who it is we need to go and reach. And so, Jesus, we're going to sing uh, this song reflecting your great love for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would hear it all as worship and all as thanksgiving, all as praise, because we are grateful for what you've done. In your name I pray this. Amen.